Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body whether by life or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh, is more necessary for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, 
I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance. And this is from God, for it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. All right, isn't that awesome? Gosh, like, to be honest, I'm a little choked up right now after, like, um, hearing her read that. I would highly encourage you, if you're somebody that is just looking for a way for yourself just to begin to think through and wrestle with scripture, <clears throat> I would encourage you to do the same with her. Um, I'm right now trying to memorize Philippians 4. So highly encourage it. I hope you dive into it. A happy belated uh, 4th of July. I hope that uh, yesterday, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, I hope you had just a phenomenal time celebrating with your, with your friends and your family. Um, if anybody knows me, my mind tends to move through just thinking historically about what happened. And the thing that hit me yesterday when I was wrestling through all of this is what it must have been like that day when all of those men got together to sign the Declaration of Independence and whether or not they kind of understood the significance of what was going on in that moment. Now, a lot of the different guys that I've read, they did have a sense that something big was happening, but I honestly believe if they were to look at the way things are now and what advanced from it and all the different things that have occurred because of that one day in which they signed that document, I don't think they had a clue at how big it really was what happened that day. Now, that, that idea of bigness is where I want to go today. As a, as a kid, and, and um, I don't know about you, but even today, I've always been the type of person that's believed we're a part of something bigger. Now, I, I realize that no doubt my, my vision has kind of waned at times. It's gone back and forth, but my most, in my most clear-headed moments, one of the things that's always got me was is that I really do believe that we were put here into this existence for something bigger than I think we realize. We weren't just placed on this planet to kind of drift through and then to fall off into nothingness. And I think sometimes, whether people want to admit it or not, they kind of feel the same way as I, as I have. And no matter someone's philosophy, no matter someone's religion, I think that humanity just has always tried to frame themselves in something bigger than themselves. We kind of almost intuitively know it. Now, this sense of significance, I think, is one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, he, he talked about this self-awareness as something like that, that's bigger, a, a God-given consciousness that is inside of everybody because God has set eternity in our hearts. In every human soul, there's this God-given awareness that there's just something more than this ordinary world, our fleeting existence. We know that there's something that we're a part of that's got to be bigger. Now, to understand Paul, and this is very important where we're going to go today, you have to understand this reality of something bigger. 
He, he never saw himself as, as, as the center of the big thing, but he constantly drew himself. He drew his readers to the awareness that they were a part of something bigger than themselves to frame how they viewed God, how they viewed themselves, how they viewed this, this cosmos in which they existed. And understand his letter to the Philippians, which we're gonna be diving into, and we're gonna study for the next few weeks, the truth of something bigger than us if we're ever going to understand this, we have to begin to grapple with and, and work this around. That's what he's talking about. There's something bigger. There's something that is grander than what we're that, than we can sometimes understand that should drive us in what we're doing. Now, when I say that he didn't see himself as, as like the, the center of existence, what I mean is that he learned in a powerful way a little bit later in his life who he truly was in the big picture. Let me see if I can help us kind of get this, if I can pull ourselves back. Paul, who was originally called Saul, was raised with a keen understanding that he wasn't the center of all things, that the one true God, Yahweh, truly was. From a little boy, he was taught the scriptures. Later in life, he devoted himself to be a leader within the Jewish community. As we will learn in Philippians, he was like the epitome of what it meant to be a great Jewish man. Now, many of you know the story of Acts 9 of how God right, opened his eyes to just how big, truly, that he is. But the thing is, is when we talk about Saul, again, who would later become Paul, he was a guy that was caught up in this small thing. He was plotting to kill a group of people called Christians who were almost like a, a little sect of Judaism. And in that moment in Acts 9, God shattered his world. Dr. Luke, one of his companions that he would oftentimes go and engage in the gospel, the writer of Acts, captured this little moment in Damascus when he was on the way to persecute Christians. And, and this is what he said. He said, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, first of all, just stop for a moment. That must have blown his mind. Second of all, in his thinking, in this world that he was doing, persecuting Christians was joining God. But again, God's about ready to show him something so much bigger than he thought. And I love what Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. As we'll find out later in Philippians 3, when we get there, this man who used to persecute and even kill followers of Jesus Christ would now see for the first time Christ as they did. He was awakened to the reality that, that Jesus Christ is true King of kings. He's Lord of lords. His new understanding of Christ was now this. And you see this like in Philippians 3, 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Look at this. For now the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. See what I mean Everything for him in that moment just absolutely changed. He now realized he was a part of something truly bigger than he ever thought. And as Jesus Christ was at the center of his understanding, this, this perspective that would radically change everything that Paul had, he would then, and this is what's so crazy, become the chief spokesperson for Christ to the non-Jewish people of the world, the Gentiles. Now, eventually, Paul was used to carry this message beyond the Middle East, even to Asia Minor, kind of our, our modern-day Turkey. 
And through a series of these powerful events, the message of Jesus eventually entered Europe, which, by the way, even our celebration of the 4th of July is an outcome of the gospel landing into Europe at that particular point. But in that moment, the flag of Christianity was planted firmly within the empire. And the first city in which God chose to plant it was in the city of Philippi. The first city that received the gospel in Europe was to the Philippians. Now, Paul's custom at the time, what he would do is he would go into a town and he would come first to the Jews. He would go to a synagogue. You'll you'll see that like in Acts 14.1. But there were so few Jews in the town that were necessary. You'd have to have 10 men to kind of form a quorum that the, the synagogue didn't even exist. And like Paul always did, he started to learn what was going on in the city. And eventually he found a God-fearing group of women that met to pray at a river just outside the city walls. The first of these that kind of understood the gospel was this merchant lady named Lydia. We find out in Acts 16, not only did she believe, but her whole family believed. And then in that very river where they used to go meet and pray, I mean, just think about it. That river used to be a place where they would gather to pray. And it now became the place of her baptism along with all of her household and potentially all the women that she used to pray with. In other words, what Paul is showing us in this moment and what Luke was showing us in the book of Acts, there is more to this gospel landing in Philippi than we will ever begin to imagine. I would encourage you to read Acts 16. We're going to explore it a little more. But the key here is now is the church has landed in a new place. It's landed for the first time in Europe. Now, it's gone wonderful places before. But now in this particular moment, this same person, Jesus Christ, who had demonstrated that Paul was a part of something that is, that's bigger than himself, had now begun to do the same thing in this town of 10,000 people. And this group of Christians in Philippi caught the bigger thing and they passionately joined Paul in in this advancing of the message of King Jesus all around then the then known world. In fact, they became the greatest partners to Paul as he advanced the gospel in different ways by sending him over and over gifts, even though they were probably a poor church to help him on his way. What they saw, and this is what I want us to capture, they saw Christ for who he truly is. Now, the reason that I so badly want to dive into the book of Philippians is I want Cornerstone again and anew to capture a new picture of who Jesus Christ is. I want that to be the whole outcome of our study of this book. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we capture and then recapture that big vision, that vision that's bigger than who we are? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to give us two hooks that I think are so important for us to hang things on as we go through the book of Philippians. Now, the first hook that I want to throw out there is, is they stayed laser focused on Christ. As with Romans, the good news that Paul shared was primarily a person. It was Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Philippians, the title Christ is used 61 times. It's almost like, in case you don't get the point, the point is this book is about Jesus. In the opening 11 verses, when we look at chapter 1, Paul used it seven times in those 11 verses. Watch this. If you got your Bible, I want you just to look at this, starting in verse 1. I'll count them out for you. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all of our remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Christ is the very heart of this letter and the one whom everything and everyone revolves around whether his readers understood it fully or not. No other noun occurs more in Philippians than his name, the the Christology, just that person of Jesus in the hymn of of chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, can be said to underpin the thinking of, of everything else in Philippians. Philippians is about Christ. Philippians is about people who are in fellowship of the gospel because they are in Christ Philippians 3.20, people whose citizenship is in heaven are with Christ. Paul was a man, and the Philippians were a people that were just captured by Christ. Whether it was Paul working his trade of, of making tents, or whether he was going town to town, his whole life and his message was Jesus Christ. He knew, and he shared this with the Philippians. That's what they were about. Now, let's go back to our idea kind of of Paul and kind of his understanding that we're involved in something bigger than we realize to kind of grasp what was his message and and what drove him. Now, if you look at Philippians 2.21, and if you want to kind of follow me through these different texts, you totally can, but I want you to catch this. You can feel the tension for Paul. He knew very awarely that all of humanity had sought, and you'll just see this in verse 21, their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, humanity has this predisposition to miss this truth. What people often didn't or don't, maybe even now I would say this, currently understand in this cosmic reality, by the time you get to Philippians 2, 10 through 11, is that one day it will become very clear who is the center of all the universe because every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He knew that one day in this giant cosmic scheme of everything, it would be clear. And so his whole pursuit, you can see this like in Philippians 3, 9, was to not only himself know and gain Christ, but to help others to know and gain Christ. He fully realized, however, that the only way people would ever begin to experience this life in Christ was through entering into his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, Christ's faithfulness, not on their own. Therefore, Paul knew his mission in life and our mission in life was to to call people to believe in, to trust in, to, to surrender to, to make allegiance to King Jesus, not later, but now. Now's the day to bend the knee. 
And Paul knew, you know this, that if they did, God would them. And here's this word, place them in Christ. And in Philippians 1.6, then begin a new work in them that he wouldn't quit until the day that Jesus Christ returned. Those who believed in Jesus Christ, like Paul, would be given Philippians 3.12 and 14, new affections and new desires for life. They would be granted 4-7, this new peace in this life, despite Philippians 4-10 through 12, the reality that they would be facing difficult circumstances, that things wouldn't be easy. But he also wanted them to know that when King Jesus returns one day, when he finally comes back, there's something incredible that's going to happen in their lives. What will come with him is more than just him. What will come with him is truly now a reward for all those that follow him. And, and this is the key then to Philippians 1.10. Anyone that does not devote their lives to this, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Don't settle for anything less is what Paul is saying to them. Devote your lives wholeheartedly to Christ. Now, I believe this way of thinking is so important to our time right now in July 5th, 2020. Paul's life revolved around Christ. And because Philippians 4, 11 through 12, he had this mentality. Circumstances did not drive him into the ditch when things got difficult. I was looking through this in different ways. His strength was not in his financial position. His strength was not in the people in positions of power. His strength was not in the rights he had as a Roman citizen. His strength was not in the possessions he owned. His strength was not found in his acceptance or rejection by culture. His strength was not in the spiritual condition of the society he resided or anything else. He didn't care if government did or didn't make him wear a mask, even though they didn't have masks back then, but let's just pretend. He didn't have to lose sleep concerning preachers or theologians he disagreed with because he knew deep within him, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And this becomes another word so important to us. He rejoiced. The word joy. This is something else I want for us as a cornerstone. It's just joy. This word that Paul uses, he uses like over, I think, 16 times to describe his just satisfaction in and happiness with this life that he's been called to, regardless of the circumstances he finds himself in. He recognized that life revolves around Christ and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, joy is not something that's external to us because the Spirit of God is in us. It now becomes a gift to those that are followers of Jesus. Joy is not based upon our circumstances. It's not something that, like I said before, is eternal. It's this secret that he comes to. It's, he kind of had found this. It wasn't a thing, it wasn't a philosophy, it wasn't a cause, it wasn't a status in life. His joy came because of the person and work of Jesus. It was larger than he could ever imagine. I think so many Christians lack so much joy right now because we've lost sight of our king. We're included into something so much bigger and the reason that we have joy is because the one who's included us into, into this, the biggest, is Jesus Christ. 
And any mission in life that we ever endeavor to begin that doesn't find its beginning, its middle, and its end in Christ will never bring peace. It will never bring joy. It will never bring contentment. Never. And I want that for Cornerstone. So the things that I want, first of all, it begins with a church that is laser-focused upon Jesus Christ. So what's the second thing? The second thing you can find in the text, and we're going to be in 1 through 11 to kind of explore this, is, is that they focused on this thing called koinonia or partnership and fellowship. And what comes from a journey that's, that's centered on Christ with others is what Paul begins to call koinonia. Now you find this idea starting in, in chapter 1. Look at verse 3 with me. We'll, we'll see this word for the first time and he'll keep kind of bringing it back in. He said, I thank my God in all remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of, and here's this thing, your partnership in the gospel from the first day, that first moment that Lydia believed until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, as Paul walked with people whose lives revolved around Christ it stirred him to thankfulness and joy. Why? Because verse five, his partnership was with them in the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, this message that transforms lives. When, when people embrace the gospel of Jesus, that he is truly king and they begin to shape their lives around him through the power of the Holy Spirit, they begin to be the people that God intended them to be, verse six. And for Paul, this truth fired him up. Sure, no doubt, 312, when he gets to that point, he says, look, we haven't already obtained this. We haven't already been made perfect. But because God is working at this and he won't quit, what I want you to do is press on and to make that your own because Christ Jesus has made you his own. This fellowship that we share with one another is primarily with Jesus. We're a part of something that is amazing and huge. That's why he says to them in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, that look now with all of you, work out your own salvation now with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul together with the Philippians, was, was in this venture, announcing to all the good news and helping them to begin to, to bring it to life. This process that we oftentimes wonder, well, what's it called? It's called discipleship. It was the task, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that, that Jesus Christ left his followers. Their call in their lives was to be the adventure of their life, this discipleship thing. It was to be the thing that every follower of Jesus was to share in. And I believe this, when we engage in this majestic enterprise of the discipleship that Jesus Christ has called us to, something amazing happens to us. Now look in the text and follow this with me. When we begin to do this, when we dive in with all of our feet, and we don't, we don't halfway dive in, we begin, verse seven, to feel a certain way towards one another. I want you to look down there, verse seven, look at that. So whether it's in good or difficult times, plenty or want, when we're talking about something like delight or comfort or imprisonment, the various conditions which Paul finds himself that he tells us about here in Philippians, we begin to verse eight, and I love this, grow in affection like Jesus' affection for one another. 
And this affection is not only something developed over time, but quite often it's something you experience quickly. He's saying, do you understand this, that there's something special that happens when you center your lives around Jesus, you join him in what he's doing, not only do you begin to flourish in your relationship with Jesus Christ, but you begin to flourish on this horizontal level with all those that are joining with you. In fact, this affection that grows is a bond. When followers of Jesus Christ begin to now live in this discipleship mission together, watch out. That's where this affection just naturally grows. I think so often we think that there's this assumption that just by simply being around one another, hanging out at each other's house, doing Bible studies, praying, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Somehow in that, we're just going to magically grow a relationship. It won't. This Christ-type affection he's talking about will only happen when we're on mission with Jesus, this mission he's given us. Sure, do things get rocky? Yes. Will we struggle with one another? Yes. But we will develop relationships with one another that now become deeply bonded. They become bonded around Christ. The Holy Spirit creates this, this, this lasting connectedness for a lifetime. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's talking about the Philippians. He's saying this, and to be honest with you, Cornerstone, we've had this and we continue to have this, but I want more of it. I want more of our lives not only centered around Jesus, but with one another. Now, let me see if I can take these, combine these two ideas, both the idea of Christ being the center of our lives and then also this bond of fellowship that we have when we join mission, uh, Jesus on his mission and what he's doing through this idea of this fellowship. And we're gonna take it from his time to our time. Now, I think there's four things that, has, that have just jumped to the surface for me as, as I've studied this letter, as I've wrestled with it personally. First, I, I don't know how many of you have struggled with these two realities, but I have had one of those things that I would say this, on a daily basis, I battle keeping Christ at the forefront of my thinking. I battle keeping his mission at the forefront and what I'm trying to do with other people. I think if you're honest, you battle with this all the time too. Maybe you just don't even know it. Instead of our eyes primarily being on sickness, primarily being on social unrest, primarily being on social issues, primarily being on whether we wear a mask or not, primarily being on virus data, primarily being on looting, primarily being on government overreach, Paul would say, I think, with the writers of Hebrews 12, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't take them off. Don't let him out of your gaze as you look upon this, this world that we're living in in which we find ourselves. But also Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, Paul, I think, would come along and urge us also, hold fast the confession of faith. Hold firm, or excuse me, of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I know some of you are wondering right now, like, how can we continue to meet together without the building in which we used to be, have as our gathering? How can we meet when we're restricted to our homes? How can we hold fast and, and stir one another when we can't gather? I mean, shoot, Governor Newsom has only kind of not only put us and restricted us to our homes, but we can't even sing together. I've pondered this question over and over my mind for the last three and a half months. But the thing I love about Philippians is, is it is a letter of innovation. 
It's a letter that says, put Paul in prison and you can't stop the gospel. Take money away from Paul, you can't stop the gospel. Put Paul in any circumstance whatsoever, you can't stop the gospel. What's so cool about Hebrews 10 is that the writer of Hebrews told us to consider how to do this. Think about it. Think how to keep Christ as the focus regardless of the conditions we find ourselves in. Now, I don't think the church in the United States is currently under serious persecution, but the early church was. The Huguenots in France were. The the Anabaptists in Germany and Switzerland, they were. The confessing church in Germany under the horrific reign of Hitler was. Even the modern churches inside of northern Africa who faced like true persecution, but they've all had to consider how to choose to meet sometimes secretly in homes, secretly in stairwells, secretly in caves. Followers of Jesus Christ that were imprisoned under absolutely heinous conditions, often in isolation, considered how and came up with hand signals. And, and, and even they would, they would do these different things in which they would send tapping on the prison walls as a way to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Now, I don't think those believers would come along and say, seriously, you guys don't have it together. How in the world have you gotten sidetracked? I think all those believers that have come before us and those believers now under true persecution would tell us, consider how in our time, under our circumstances, that we are going to be creative and innovative under the circumstances God's placed us in. And think about it. And I was wrestling with this in Cornerstone right now. Many that are the most susceptible to the virus, our our seasoned saints are considering how to most effectively stir up one another to love and good deeds and are using technology to do this. I mean, I was really wrestling with this. Who would have ever thought that our grandparents would be savvy not only to Zoom, but would do TikToks? We have older saints in our church family doing just that. Others have been considering how and they're participating in times of worship in their front yards where people can safely distance. No one would have thought six months ago to move our worship of God into our streets in these circumstances, it would have never come along unless they would have happened. Some have considered how and have moved their lives outside, engaging with those who follow and don't follow Christ from their front, front doors cornerstone. The reason I want to teach this because I don't want us to buy into the lie that we can't do this. We can consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, how to get together. Don't become jaded because somehow it's okay to protest, but not to attend a church service outside. That does us no good to complain. In fact, Paul calls us constantly, do everything without complaining. When did Jesus ever say it would be fair to advance the gospel? You should assume as a Christian that God is going to allow it to be uphill so that we depend upon the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. That's why Paul later in chapter four writes, look, I've, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It didn't matter if Paul was under arrest or he was free. He knew how to be brought low. He knew how to abound in every circumstance. Paul learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? He knew he was a part of something with others that is bigger than himself. And so therefore he could write, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't grow weary in will doing cornerstone. We're considering how to do this. And I believe we're going to get it in new and innovative ways that are going to allow us to advance the gospel through our city. And we're going to thank God that this was allowed to happen with us. 
There's a second thing I want to throw out there that we're facing, and I think it's a dire situation in the church at, at large in the United States, but I think it also includes us at Cornerstone. I'm watching as I see us starting to fracture all over the place instead of unifying. Our anger and our ire, I feel like, has been focused upon our circumstances, and I just see this deeper and deeper division growing over opinions and feelings over our current situation. In Philippians, Paul faced dilemmas from his government, from preachers and teachers, his own racial group, the Jews. In each and every situation that he was in, he didn't complain about them, but instead was challenged and challenged the Philippians to get their eyes back onto Christ, cornerstone. If right now you're struggling, get your eyes back on Christ. In fact, there were these two ladies that that were in the particular church called Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4.2, and he begged them in the church, watch this, if you're there, Philippians 4.2, to agree where? In the Lord. We have to fight for the same things. He begged the the Philippians in, in, in chapter three, verse 17, join me in imitating me. And this idea of now, keep your eyes and the walk according to the example that we have given you. Keep your eyes on Christ. Follow those who look most like Christ. Which leads to these last two things I want to tell you. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, be careful who and what you are allowing to influence your mind right now. The internet and the airwaves and cable television, cable news are full of people who do not have their focus on Christ. Instead, they're Philippians 3.18, enemies of the cross of Christ, whose minds, verse 19, are set on earthly things. Be careful what you're doing right now. Don't buy into the world and the way that it thinks. Instead, find people and information to put in your life who will fill your minds with Philippians 4.8. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Saturate your mind with them. That's why I want to teach Philippians. This is what Paul's going to call us to. And lastly, here's the thing. Pray, just pray, but pray rightly. If you've got your Bibles, go to one nine, and I just wanna read this verse over you as I finish. I want you to watch how Paul prayed for the Philippians so that you can pray the same way. Look at one nine, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. His first thing wasn't that he would get out of jail. His first thing wasn't that circumstances would get easier. And I would say this, get it out of your mind that somehow we need to get things just right for us to advance the gospel. Instead, he said, no, love, not a mamby-pamby love, a love like our world kind of tells us that is here today, gone tomorrow, but no, a love with knowledge, the truth of God's word, a discernment, how to land it in our world. Why? So that we can prove what's most excellent, what really is important in this life, how we really engage in what God's calling us to do, because why? He wants us to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He wants us to stand well for Jesus, before Jesus, filled, he says, with the fruit of righteousness, this fruit that comes out of our life as an expression to our world that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We gotta get back to this. We gotta get back to the basics. And so in the name of the Father who adores you, this father who has set before us a task that is not gonna be easy and it's gonna be difficult. 
In the name of the son who through humility and grace and dignity walked through this life as the example that we're to follow, not because it was easy, but actually because it was hard. It showed to the world the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in the name of the spirit of God that I believe can empower us to be the people that God's called us to be. May God bless you this week as you look into Philippians and we be people that focus intently on Jesus. And as we now become this fellowship of people that are having affection for one another to advance the greatest message of all time. God bless you. I'm gonna be gone for a couple weeks, but I can't wait to come back. I love you all.